Our scripture today comes from the book of Numbers. We're in the 21st chapter, and I'll be reading verses 4 through 9. From Mount Hor they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. But the people became impatient on the way. The people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we detest this miserable food. Then the Lord sent poisonous serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, We have sinned by speaking against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord to take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a poisonous serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten shall look at it and live. So Moses made a serpent of bronze and put it upon a pole. And whenever a serpent bit someone, that person would look at the serpent of bronze and live. This is the word of the Lord for the people of God. The book of Numbers is a strange collection of ancient stories, laws, poems, talking donkeys, and that beautiful priestly blessing in chapter 6, the Lord bless you and keep you, the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you, the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. But today, we're in chapter 21. And at first, things seem right out of the Israelite playbook. They're whining to Moses and complaining against God. Every day, it's the same old quail and manna, quail and manna. They were sick of it. They just wanted to be able to sit in a restaurant again, like in the old days. And just when I was beginning to think that I could milk the wandering in the wilderness metaphor one more time during this pandemic, the story takes a rather strange turn. Yahweh, apparently sick and tired of these people being so sick and tired, sends snakes among them. And the snakes start biting people, and people start dying. Now, it doesn't actually say that God sent the snakes to punish the people for complaining. But that's the conclusion the Israelites come to. And so they tell Moses to tell God how sorry they are for not being more grateful for what they have. And to please, if you don't mind, take the snakes away. Which Moses does. But God doesn't take away the snakes. Not exactly. Instead, things get even stranger. God tells Moses to make a bronze image of a snake and put it on a pole. And whenever someone who's been bitten by one of the snakes looks at this, the story says, they survive the bite. Now, I don't know about you, but the God I believe in doesn't send poisonous snakes to get people to stop whining, nor is my Lord into magical healing bronze snakeheads. So whenever this text shows up in the lectionary, lectionary as an option for preaching, I usually treat it well, like a poisonous snake and give it a wide berth. But you know, sometimes a text I disagree with teaches me more than one I do agree with. So this year, without knowing where it might take me, I decided to jump into the snake pit. 
And the first thing that struck me was that the thing people were to look at in order to save them was the very same thing that was killing them. It wasn't, for example, an image of God or a a sign of the covenant on that pole. It was a snake, which is interesting if you remember that anti-venom, still the most reliable cure for a snake bite, is made by taking a small amount of venom from a snake and, well, with the help of a little science, creating antibodies that can save your life. Could it be the Israelites knew something about this themselves, or at least intuited the connection somehow? It all reminded me of the old saying, hair of the dog that bit you. Now, most of us know that phrase as a reference to the old folk wisdom of drinking a little bit of alcohol to help relieve a hangover. The phrase actually originated in an even older belief that rabies could be cured by making a potion containing a little hair of the dog that bit you. Now, there's no evidence that such a potion actually works, by the way, but still, what an interesting idea that sometimes the cure for what ails you is a little bit of the very thing that threatens you. It, it seems so unlikely, and, and yet that very unlikely idea is saving our world right now as we all intentionally and voluntarily inject ourselves with a little bit of the same virus we've all been doing, well, everything we can to avoid this past year. So, as I reflected on this strange story of stricken Israelites gazing upon an image of the very thing that was killing them, and thought about how science has embraced this same idea, I wondered if a similar principle held true in our faith lives Are our spirits ever healed by injecting ourselves with a little bit of what we've been working so hard to avoid? One of the clearest places that I think this principle shows up is with other people. People that, for whatever reason, we're afraid of or don't like, feel uncomfortable around. Whenever our instinct is to avoid or run away from someone, it's almost always the case that we should instead move toward them. Not always, of course. I can certainly think of a few examples of when running is a very good idea. But think of all the times in your life that you have been surprised. When you thought you had someone or some group figured out, and you thought you knew who they were and didn't want anything to do with them, and then you actually got to know them. You gazed upon them, and what you, what you once feared, well, it melted away. This church has a long history, for example, of addressing racism. And what that mostly has meant for this mostly white church is creating opportunities for relationships and understanding. It's meant finding ways to move toward the thing that we don't understand or that scares us or the thing inside of us that we are ashamed of. The same is true of all the work that we do on immigration, homophobia, sexism. Wherever there is fear and misunderstanding, the cure is so often to move toward the very thing that feels threatening. Because when it comes to our spiritual and moral growth, the real problem is almost always found not in the thing we fear, but in ourselves in our smallness, in our judgment, in our, in a word, 
our sin. Spiritually, that's probably the thing we fear the most, is looking at our own capacity for sin. We run from it whenever we can, and we spend most of our lives denying those more disturbing aspects of who we really are. If only we had a time when we could intentionally move toward the very things we fear, our own sins and shames, a time when we mustered the courage to gaze upon ourselves and try to do an honest inventory of what we find there, a time to admit our mistakes and faults and shortcomings, a time to acknowledge the ways we have sinned against others. If only the Christian church had set aside such a time, a liturgical season maybe. I had never thought about it until working with this strange text, but Lent is the season of the hair of the dog that bit you. It's the time of year we are invited to do the most counterintuitive thing we could imagine. Why? Because doing so cures us, because it sets us free. As strange as it seems, spending time moving toward the things in us that we're afraid of or ashamed of doesn't kill us, it liberates us. So we still have four more weeks of Lent left. After that, we can all go back to trying as hard as we can to project a shiny, perfect image of ourselves. But for the next few weeks, maybe take 10 minutes in the morning and just look as honestly as you can at yourself. Take a walk or journal, pray. Let your guard down with God and trust that you and God can handle whatever you find. Lent is an invitation to discover that gazing at the image of the snake that bit you, it doesn't kill you. It's how you survive. Amen.